In the 1960s, uh, an American Christian philosopher, or not American, uh, a Christian philosopher by the name of Francis Schaeffer started the Labrie Fellowship in Switzerland. And, and Francis Schaeffer was looking at the state of the world and, and he recognized something. He, he recognized that there was a deep need for a place for individuals who were overwhelmed at what the world was doing as the world was going crazy with civil rights movements and the hippies and all that stuff that makes the rest of us crazy and political turmoil. He starts the Labrie Fellowship as a place for people to come and find shelter. The word Labrie is French for shelter. And so he starts this fellowship in uh, Switzerland and it is an encouragement for weary travelers to come to come and find rest, to come and find shelter, to come and find a place to ask the questions that they need to ask, to pursue the Lord in a season where everybody is encouraging them away from pursuing the Lord. So he starts this institute and it, it goes on to um, just radically shape a generation in a lot of ways. In the 90s, about 30 years after this uh, Labrie was started, uh, a man from Wall Street uh, was just burned out of his job and somebody told him he needed to go to Labrie. He needed to go to Labrie and just breathe for a bit. So he goes to Labrie, this Wall Street worker who has been day after day after day burning out at the rat race that is the life of New York and Wall Street. And he goes to Labrie and, and something ma magical happens. Well, magical is probably the wrong term, but miraculous happens. Uh, he gives his life to Christ. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is miraculous. Later on, as he's interviewed about his time at Labrie, they, they ask him, they say, what was it? You, uh, educated New Yorker, successful New Yorker, what was it that made you realize that you needed Jesus? What was the argument? And he responded, he said, there was no argument or philosophy that made me respond to Jesus. But at the Labrie Institute, for the first time, I felt truly human. Ever since I've heard this story, that phrase has haunted me that he felt truly human. If we look out at the state of our world today, it would seem that everyone in our world today is desiring to make sure that you walk in greater humanity, right? They want you to be able to feel as human as you are. And so whatever you're feeling, that is what you must be. And here's this phrase from this man who gave his life to the feeling of being human, the success story saying, I never felt truly human until I was surrounded by a bunch of Christians. And surrounded by a bunch of Christians, I finally realized my value. So what does that phrase mean? to be truly human, and why might this man have felt that in the context that he was in? If we look throughout the, the creation narrative or the narrative of Scripture, we see in the beginning that there's creation. 
And this is a, this is a piece of the text that is often missed, right? So we, we all love to go to Genesis 3. We all love to go to the fact that humanity has fallen, that the world is broken, that sin is here. And we love to go to that because it makes sense of the insanity that we're seeing in our world. It makes sense of the insanity that we see in us. But when we start there, we miss something. We miss that in Genesis 1 and 2, the way that God had created us was good. There is something about the garden and the way that God creates and institutes humanity with dignity, value, and worth that is necessary for each and every one of us to hold fast to because otherwise we cannot understand our world. If we start with brokenness and we start with sin, we miss a fundamental piece of the puzzle for understanding humanity. We have to start in the garden. We have to start with goodness. Now, lest you think I'm about to get heretical, we're all messed up. That should have gotten way more amens. Um, we are all messed up. And that is because of sin. That is because of brokenness. There's a fracturing. And what happens in that fracturing is you and I's humanity becomes broken, lost, fallen. But what's the narrative of Scripture? That Jesus is God's plan for redeeming the world, for reconciling creation back to himself, back to that position of goodness. There will be a day in the future for those of us who are in Christ where you no longer suffer from wondering what will happen tomorrow. You'll no, you'll no longer suffer from that moment when you spoke and you probably shouldn't have. You'll no longer suffer from the pain that this world causes. That is part of God's redemption process. His rescue plan for humanity is that for those of us who are in Christ, the promise is, as we've seen in the book of Colossians, new creation. Now, we've got to define that word new. It matters. New means restored in Scripture. New creation, we are being restored to that original goodness to that state of beauty, of life, and of order. We're in that process right now. In fact, the covenant community for Christians is the only answer that we have to the problems of brokenness in the world because it actually is the covenant community that we enter into, the covenant community with God and the covenant community with one another that starts to build back our humanity. And it's why this man can say that he went to the Labrie Institute and he felt truly human because for the first time, people were calling out and cultivating the things in him that were intended. God is recreating, bringing about new creation. And He does so in Christ. 
We've made note early on about our time in Colossians, but it's important for me to draw back to it that the entire book can be summed up in three words, life in Christ. But it can also be summed up in the Savior song that happens in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And the main theme of that song is that Jesus is the Lord of creation and He is the Lord of the new creation as well. And what the gospel does when it starts to do its work in us is it starts to bring about that recreation in our hearts. You see, if we go Old Testament, what's the promise of the new covenant? The promise of the new covenant when Jesus comes and makes a covenant based on his shed blood and gifts the Holy Spirit upon his ascension, the promise is new hearts, new creation. The center of being revitalized, restored. That's the promise for the Christian. And so now you and I, upon giving our lives to Christ, are invited into that process of restoration, of recreation. We've made note of the fact that, that Paul has three chapters or, or two chapters of ridiculously beautiful gospel good news. And then he does something. He shifts in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 5, he, he moves from the good news of the gospel and he starts to go into practical application of the gospel. And here's what's important for us to know. He starts with the household of God. 3, 5 through 17, he is talking about the church. And then in 3, 18 through 4, 1, he zeroes in on the Christian household. You see, what Paul knew that most of us don't realize is that it is in the home where the gospel starts to do the deepest work. We've, we've said this before, but uh, the quote from N.T. Wright we've leaned on is, it is in the home where for better or worse, one is truly oneself. Who you are in the home is who you are. And the good news of the gospel is that God starts to do his work and his change there. That's, that's where he wants to change us. He wants to bring us into his new creation by starting in the home by starting with who we are in the home. I don't have time to preach old sermons or last week's sermons, so if you guys have time and you want to hear more about that, it's on the podcast. But what I think is ridiculously important here is the fact that Paul seems to zero in on the importance of the home for the recreation pro project that God is inviting us into the importance of the home for the recreation project that God is inviting us into. We do not downplay the role of the household. We do not ignore its importance. One of the things that we are ridiculously committed to at this church is I get you for we get you for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. That is not going to be enough. The home has to be the place 
that the gospel begins to do its work. And that has to be the primary focus, the primary focus of discipleship for the family. We do not downplay the role of the household. And this is the temptation in the church. The temptation in the church is to downplay the household for the sake of the mission. This may not apply to everybody, but so many of us have watched as families are, are broken down and destroyed and, and you look at, at what is the result of that and it often becomes that the family became secondary. Now here's the deal. I don't want to idolize family. I'm not trying to say you have to have, you know, mom, dad, you know, son, daughter. And I'm just saying in the home, in the place where you are most yourself, the gospel does deep work. And when we relegate who we are in the home to be separate from who we are in front of people, Here's what happens. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Who we are in the home is who we are. And God wants to start there. He does not want to start with your religious activity. He doesn't want to start with your ability to do things for the kingdom. He wants to start in the home. He wants to do work there. And so many of us, and, and man, please, please don't mishear me. I desire that we would all serve in this church and in our community. I desire that we would be pictures of a loving God for this city. I desire that we would be pictures of the covenant community for one another. But if we miss out on the home to do that, our reach will be far smaller than we think. And what Paul seems to note and to pull on here is that outside of the covenant community, the next place that the gospel is most powerfully seen is in who you are at home, who you are in your primary relationships. I've made note of this before, and, and we talked about marriage a few weeks ago, but marriage is just, there's not a difference between the church and the world. There just isn't. And that's not, that's not to bring condemnation or, or shame to anyone. That's not what I'm trying to do here. But it's a reality of what I'm trying to say in that there should be something to us that's more important because it seems that God thinks it's more important that we invest deeply in who we are at home. So here's what I'm after today. My hope today is that we would begin to look at our relationships in light of eternity. That we would begin to look at our relationships 
in light of eternity, that we'd recognize and take seriously the power of the gospel in our closest relationships as a way of reflecting the new creation community that Jesus is bringing about through his death, his resurrection, and his return. That through our relationship in the home, we would promote the dignity, value, and worth of each member in such a way that people can say we feel truly human when we're here. And so how do we do this? How do we as Christians say, let's walk out of here today and look differently in our homes? Well, the argument that Paul's going to make in this passage is that we keep the end in mind. That we hold present circumstances up against the knowledge that everything is going to look different when Jesus comes back. Our future is bright. We are being made new. Let's look at the text so you see where I'm getting this. A little context for us that's important. This text, again, has in mind the Christian household. Paul is writing to a church. He is writing to a church that is referred to in verse 3.5. Look at, or uh, 3.11, sorry, 12. There we go. Got there finally. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is written to the church. This is written to those who find themselves in relationship with the Lord. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then he goes down into verse 18 through 4.1. In light of that statement, and so in verses 3, 5 through 17, I said this before, he is dealing with the applications of the gospel in the corporate body of Christ, in the household of God. And then he drills down those applications to the Christian household. And I want us to notice something. Notice that in verses 15 through 20, that's the Savior's song of chapter 1. I love those of you who have your Bibles in front of you. You can see this. Chapter 15 through 20, we've noted that everything in this letter can somehow be plugged back to this Savior's song. Look at verse 18 of the Savior's song. It says this, it says, and he, chapter one, verse 18, and he is the head of the body. It's talking about Christ, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Notice the language, in everything. Notice that language, because that language shows up in our passage today. The summarizing of the song is that Christ is the Lord of creation, and then in this passage, verse 18, we're seeing that he's the Lord of the new creation, that all things find their purpose in him. In Jesus, we see the point of it all. We see the reason for everything, not just why things were created, but the way in which God is redeeming and reconciling all things to himself. So what's the purpose of Jesus' reconciliation? What is the purpose of his resurrection? So that he'd be of first importance. So that he'd be preeminent. So that in everything he'd be supreme. That he'd be the most important thing. Look back at our scripture today. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything. He is tying the obedience of children to the reality of Jesus as the Lord of all creation 
and of the new creation. Bondservants, verse 22, obey in everything. He is tying the role of bondservant to the connection made in chapter 1, verse 18, of Jesus being the Lord in everything, being preeminent in everything, being of first importance in everything. If we go down, he uses the same concept without the same words. He says, whatever you do, in verse 23. Whatever you do, everything you do. He is inviting the people in this passage, those who find themselves in the Christian household, to see through the present circumstance to the truest reality. To see through their present circumstance to the truest reality that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is of first importance. That Jesus is preeminent. Paul is calling the church in Colossae to hold up their present circumstances up against the knowledge that everything is going to look different when Jesus comes back. Our future is bright. We are being made new. And we will repeat that refrain throughout this sermon because we need it. That our present circumstances need to be held up against the knowledge that everything changes upon Jesus' return. In our lives now, we are not living as part of the original creation. Our relationships in Christ should be shaped and formed in such a way that they point forward to the new creation. Considering Christ's supremacy, His re resurrection, and His future coming, this is how you relate to your primary relationships now. So he begins with wives, and then he moves to husbands, and I've, I've dealt with those in previous weeks, but then he, he comes to children. Now, I love this. I, I just love this passage. He comes to children with the call to obedience to their parents, and anyone who has a toddler will say Amen. He comes to children with obedience to parents, but he ties it to something. He ties it to the Lord. Why does he tie it to the Lord? So that in everything, we would see through our present reality unto the real circumstances. See through our present circumstances into the truest reality that Jesus is Lord. So the obedience to parents is rooted not in your parents. It's rooted in Christ. For this pleases the Lord. Now something else is radical in this passage, in, in this specific verse where he addresses children directly. He is addressing children as part of the household of God. He is addressing children as those who have faith, as those who are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's wild. And that's wild to our generation that would treat children as tomorrow's church. Paul seems to think they're part of the church today if they're in Christ. 
that should radically shape how we think about them in the church. They are no longer a distraction that we have to entertain so that mom and dad can get the word. They are someone whose discipleship we care just as much about as we do yours. Paul recognizes they're a part of the church. They aren't individuals to keep in check morally. It's not make sure your children behave because otherwise your reputation will be ruined. No, Paul goes after the heart, the heart of the matter. So implicit in this text, not explicit, is as parents, our call for our children is not to beat them into submission. It's not to desire that they would just be obedient for the sake of obedience. It's to go after their heart. You will get nowhere if your kid obeys you out of fear. You're only going to get somewhere is if you are seeing the heart of the matter. Parents, read Parenting by Paul Tripp. See, Paul believes that children need to see through the authority that's been placed over them to their true authority. So he goes directly after the children's hearts. He says the motives for their obedience needs to be directly rooted not in their parents' pleasure, but in God's pleasure. And we're going to learn something about that in a second. Their motive for obedience is not in, God's, not in their parents' pleasure, but in God's pleasure. Their obedience pleases the Lord. That's the reason. That's the reason. Side note of application, not the main point of the passage, but for those of you who are in parents in here, I just want to encourage you. I just want to strongly encourage you that the way that you parent your children needs to be modeled after the Lord's pleasure of them, not after your own. You are not trying to create mini-me's who know how to make sure that they run around the house and don't offend you. You're trying to create individuals who pursue the Lord. And so you need to make sure that you're in check and you are not disciplining because of a preference but disciplining with the end that your children would look like Christ and walk in the pleasure of the Lord. So he invites the children into obedience, not because he thinks children are inherently disobedient, but because he thinks they're part of the family of God and part of the new creation community. And the invitation for a child whose heart has been captured by the beauty of the gospel is the same for the heart of the adult whose heart has been captured by the beauty of the gospel, living in light of Christ's supreme authority, living in light of Christ's victory, living in light of his eternal reign. And then he turns his attention to what I think is one of the hardest parts of this passage. And you're like, he's about to talk about slaves. How is this the hardest part? He just talks about fathers. Let's read it. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Can we make note of something in regards to husbands and fathers in this passage? 
Neither husbands nor fathers are tied to the Lord in this passage. Notice every other individual, whether it is wives or children or masters or slaves, all of their obedience, all of their response to this is tied to the Lord in some way. And you have fathers and you have husbands who stand out with no attachment to the Lord in their specific positions. I'm going to let you sit with that for just a second because that's mind-blowing to me. The other thing that's different about this passage, specifically with fathers and husbands, is fathers and husbands are the only ones in this passage that get do not commands. You see, everybody else in the passage gets encouragement, gets a charge, but it's not a negative charge. It's a positive charge. It's a do this thing. But then we have the father and the husband, both of them rooted in do not commands. Do not be harsh with them and do not be discouraged with them. So before we get into that, I think that for the fathers in the room, and I would just say for the parents in the room, there's a question that we need to ask ourselves based off this passage, and it's, is our influence in the life of our children, is our rules, is our present, is presence, is it pointing them towards what pleases the Lord? Like, if, if our children were to walk down the path that our parenting is trying to lay, would it end up in them being someone who lives a life pleasing to the Lord? Look, we, we cannot save our children. We just can't. And you know this. You know people from radically broken homes that are now like on fire for the Lord. And you know people from healthy and beautiful homes that now are, want nothing to do with the Lord. We can't save our children. And that's not meant to discourage you. God's a much better Savior than you are anyway. But that is, made, that is an important recognition for us to make before we get into what I'm about to say, and it's that we cannot save our children. Only God can. But we can make it easier. Or we can make it more difficult for them. We can raise children in a home where they feel truly human. Or we can raise children in a home where they have to walk on eggshells in order to get approval. We can raise children in a home where they wonder if their life is even of any value to their parents. We can raise children in a home that makes them feel like they have to perform in order to earn love. And all of those things, all of those things, can make it much harder for our kids to relate to the gospel. But they can also make the gospel that much more beautiful to them. God is not done with your children just because you messed up. God is not done with my child when I mess up. But God does invite me into a way of parenting that makes it easier for them to connect to the Lord, not harder. Notice these two negative commands in this scripture. 
Husbands, do not be harsh with them. Fathers, do not provoke, lest they become discouraged. They're both negative commands. They can both be summed up in this idea of do not embitter them. Do not operate in the home in a way that embitters or sours the home. And so I'm going to just speak to husbands and fathers for a moment. Husbands and fathers, have you thought about your presence in the home as having that kind of power that you can embitter or sour the home by your presence in it? Years ago, when I was in California working for the company I was working for, they had me read a, a leadership book. And in this leadership book, there was an illustration, and it said that there are those individuals who are thermometers, that they take the temperature of the room. And then there are those individuals who are thermostats. They set the temperature of the room. Husbands, fathers, we don't get the opportunity or the ability to be thermos, thermo, thermometers. We're thermostats. We set the temperature. And our presence can either make it an enjoyable environment or we can embitter the home significantly. Just taking the temperature is not an often, option. And so what do we do? What's the, how do we avoid embittering our homes? What is the opposite of this, this theme of embitterment? And I, I think one of the ways I've heard it said this last week is that husbands and fathers are to be a gentle presence in the home. You see, a, a gentle presence from a husband and a father sets a climate of love and safety in the home. Here in this passage, we, we're dealing with uh, a situation that is tightly rooted in ancient culture, right? This is cultural and in context, and we need to make sure that we see that. Uh, and so there, in ancient Rome, there are rules regarding the pattern of the family. There are plenty of things not to do for the wife. There are plenty of things not to do for the servant. There are plenty of things not to do for the child in the ancient Roman household, but it would have been shocking to hear, don't do this as the authority figure in the household for the husband or the father. It was unheard of for the ancient world to have a call against the authority figure. Why? Why do these two specific roles stand out with negative commands? I think it's because they're pictures of God. God the Father and God as the husband of his people, and that is a powerful metaphor that we in this room who find ourselves in the context of husbanding, husbandry and fathering, we hold a title that God holds. The way that we operate as husbands and fathers in the home can radically shape the way that the members of our home view God. You cannot save your wife and kids. 
but you can certainly make it harder or easier for them to see God's heart for them. And here is what is implicit in this text, that God the Father does not provoke his children. He is not in the business of embittering his people. He is not only good, for, good to you, he is good for you. Discouragement never comes from God. Hopelessness never comes from God. This idea that you will never be able to find yourself in his pleasure, that never comes from God for you, child. You are loved and you are cherished and you are invited into his household to know who you are. You are loved and you are cared for and you are brought back into his household as a son. And that's the presence you carry with you into your home presence of provoking one another to love and good works. A presence of invitation. And so fathers, don't provoke your children to become discouraged. Husbands, don't be harsh because God is not harsh to his people. Fathers, don't provoke and discourage because God is not provoking his children to discouragement, which means that in the new creation community, so much of the way that the husband and the father operate shapes the picture seen from the outside. The role of pastor is closely tied to that of the role of the father. That's why a pastor is to live in his household in such a way that it is ordered after God's household. That's why we don't put up with harsh pastors who provoke individuals to anger and discouragement, but instead walk in a provocation of love and encouragement for God the Father because that is what God would have not only in his household, but in the Christian household. Husbands and fathers, you have the power to embitter, to drive towards hopelessness, but your gentle presence in the home can cultivate an environment of peace that reveals the heart of God who is gentle and lowly and he is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love who leads us by still waters, not by the waters of inconsistency, not by the waters of constantly on edge, not by waters of fear, but by still waters and into rest. Husbands, this is who God is for you. Fathers, this is who God is for you. And the way you become like that is by leaning into those truths. By leaning into those truths. That God is pleased to have his fullness dwell in Christ. And Christ was pleased to go to the cross for you, to reconcile you by his blood shed on the cross so that you could be a part of his new covenant community. Should have preached this sermon in two sermons. We had a lot of work to do. There are a lot of questions that are erupt from this passage that we need to answer, specifically in our cultural climate. Um, here in verse 22, we see a phrase, bond servants. Maybe your translation, uh, I think, is probably more accurate here where it says slaves. Slaves obey in everything. You see, the Bible is about to give instructions to how slaves and masters should interact. 
And this letter is written to a church where there's just no other way to say this. There are people in this church who own other people in the church. And so what we'd expect when we come to a letter like this is we'd expect outright abolishment. We'd expect Paul to write and say, hey, stop with the slavery, guys. You've been freed. Shouldn't you walk in freedom? We'd expect that. But we don't have that. And so we come to this passage and we have questions to ask. I think we have to answer, is God okay with slavery in any form? And the answer from Scripture is no, He is clearly not. And so I think we have to then answer, if God isn't okay with slavery, why does this passage not condemn it? There's three things that we need to help us navigate this conversation. Uh, well, four, but the one I just came up with right now. Uh, you need to not be so rooted in your cultural context that you can't see what's happening in this passage. So we need to drop our baggage with these words at the door as we come to this conversation. The Bible speaks to those things. We'll get to those things. But we can't start with those things. Because otherwise we'll have a distorted view of Scripture. So three things we need. We need how the ancient world operated. We need to recognize the subversive nature of this passage. And then we need the testimony of Scripture on this issue. Let's go. How the ancient world operated. Slaves. Slaves were a large part of the Roman Empire at the time. Slaves would be bought and then they would be called to stay in your home. Here's why this matters. This is written to the Christian household. So slaves would be a part of the Christian household at this time. In return for lodging, they would then be called to do work for you. You were bought, but you were also bought and gifted with security. Slaves were not actually the lowest members of society at this time. That would have been something called day laborers who had no home and no security, and they had to go day by day based on whatever job they could find. And so slavery as an institution at this time is an institution that provides security in a lot of ways, and a home in a lot of ways. Now, lest we think that it was a rosy system, there's still a large gap between them and the elite of society. You see, the slave system in the Roman Empire and the Roman world was really diverse. For some, being a slave was oppressive, but for others it would have looked a lot more like an employer and employee relationship. It was not racial. It was not looking at an ethnic group of people and believing about them that they are intrinsically inferior because of the color of their skin. The Bible has always come out strongly against that idea. And far be it from us to not argue for that. And the greatest stain upon American Christianity, potentially. That is not what this slavery is. This slavery is political. It had a lot more to do with Roman citizenship, with socioeconomic class. You see, more than half the population at this time, over 60 million people in the Roman Empire, would have been slaves. There's no such thing as the middle class. So slavery, while in many ways was a very damaging thing, 
It did one thing in the ancient world. It offered cultural and economic security that would not have been provided otherwise to these individuals. Now, here's what we also need to recognize about what's happening in this passage. Christianity at this time is not a powerful institution. Like, Christianity right here in this moment, out of the 60 million, maybe has 1%, if that, of the population. Probably not even that. And so what we have happening in this passage is Paul writing to a Roman world telling people within that world how to operate for the sake of the gospel in their current circumstances. You see, Christianity doesn't have the influence in high places at this time. And so to just throw out an abolition statement into this passage just would not have made sense. Paul believes the gospel is going to turn the world upside down. He's seen it happen in Ephesus. He believes that's the future that the world is heading towards, that the current form is passing away, that the world is moving towards being totally wrecked by the gospel. He believes that. But this letter is not written to that this letter is written to people in very real circumstances asking, how in the world does my Christianity influence this? So maybe it would have felt, made us feel a little better about ourselves in the 21st century, but it just would have been wildly unhelpful to the original readers to read Abolish Slavery. Now, what we do need to see is that if, if Paul would have written that, most of these individuals would have then gone and found themselves without security, without a place to stand, and they would have found themselves in a worse position than they were before. You see, in, in, as a slave in this context, at least you had a home. As a slave in this context, you weren't considered fully human, but at least you were considered useful. Day laborers, that was not the case. And so an outright abolition statement in this very moment right here would not have been helpful to anyone. But we do need to look at the subversive nature of this passage because what Paul is doing here is not advocating for slavery. He's being very strategic. First, the first thing we need to note is that he addresses them. <laughs> As part of the new creation community, he writes a letter and he actually addresses them, which is unheard of at that time. That he would address them not with negative commands, but with positive ones. You see, he addresses them and he gives their work meaning and value and purpose. Their work is no longer about their master. They are living their life right now considering eternity. In addressing them, he invites equality into their position. Even if their masters treated them like things, tools, animals, and slaves, they are still to regard themselves as fully human, as serving the Lord. What their masters say about them is not... Who they are. Here's, here's where this really matters. Look at verse 24. Whatever you do, uh, he, he talks before, he says, don't do this for your masters. Don't do it as a people pleaser, but be sincere in your heart. Not fearing your master, but fearing the Lord, which is really good news as we just recognized because God is what? He is not, provo not a provocative God. 
He is not a God who is harsh. He is a God who rules righteously and justly. And so when he invites them into fear of the Lord, he is inviting them into fear of the Lord who is actually a good ruler. And then he says, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, and here's the real kicker. He brings them up. He calls them equal as value by addressing them. And then he says this, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Slaves in the ancient Roman culture had no such thing as inheritance to call their own. Even the best slave life did not earn an inheritance. And here is what Paul is saying, is your work right now is not limited by your social circumstances. Your work right now is part of the inheritance of what God is doing. Who you are in the present needs to be held in light of the eternal reality. He addresses their masters on their behalf as well also considering eternity. Now, here's actually what I would do here in this passage. There's this weird phrase in, in 25. We've got four, which is, it's, it's furthering the argument, but the, the statement that he makes does not mean much uh, in the context. He says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality the individuals who would have read this would have lived their entire lives in a, in a society of partiality. They would have lived their entire lives where it didn't matter if they were in the right or in the wrong. If they confronted one of the elite class, they were the ones who paid for it. There was partiality. And so when Paul writes here, for the wrongdoer will be paid back without partiality, He's leveling the playing field and he is saying that those who oppress you because of your status as slave will be paid back for their wrongdoing. He's rooting their confidence in service of the Lord in the righteous judgment that the Lord will bring. And then he moves the conversation into masters. And he tells them to rule justly and fairly, knowing that they have a master in heaven. You see, the testimony of Scripture on this issue is that, I mean, the Old Testament storyline is rooted in the, in the Exodus narrative. It's a people rescued from harsh and oppressive slavery and brought out to be a people of God. Earlier in this chapter, 3 verse 11, he says, in the body of Christ, there is no longer slave and free. This very letter is set with a man by the name of Onesimus and another letter is sent with it. It's the letter of Philemon and in the letter of Philemon, you know what's happening there? Paul is inviting Philemon to receive back a slave who has wronged him, not as a slave, but as a brother. He charges Philemon not to receive Onesimus as a slave, but as a brother. Here in this passage, Paul is teeing up his argument to, to walk in forgiveness and reconciliation. This passage we are in this morning might be missing what we'd expect to find, but it belongs to a Bible that is abundantly clear with a picture of a just God who desires that this people and his people would do justice, would love mercy, and would walk humbly. And it has been the word of God wielded rightly by the people of God that has condemned prophetically the oppression of people. And there are countless examples of that throughout history. Time does not grant me the ability to tell you of great men and women throughout 
history who, upon reading the words of Scripture, dedicated their life to the freedom of all men and women. Men such as William Wilberforce or Frederick Douglass or Francis Grimke or Sarah and Angelina Grimke or Harriet Beecher Stowe, all Christians shaped by the Word of God, promoting the way of God in the world and fighting for freedom. We might not find what we expect in this passage, but this passage, this letter, this idea of new creation in Christ, the supreme Christ who is the Lord of it all and is bringing about Zion, his heavenly kingdom to bear through the power of the gospel, has sown the seeds of many great abolitionist movements throughout history. You see, Christ is the Lord of creation and new creation, and in the new creation community, you become truly human. Not property. Not elitist. But bought, paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ who makes all things new. You see, Christ releases us to be truly human and we are invited to express that true self, not in becoming our best self now, not in asserting our dominance upon others, not in retreating from relationships that are difficult, but we are invited to walk in self-giving in such a way that we uplift the dignity, value, and worth of those closest to us. The home is the place, for better or worse, where one is truly oneself and what glorious good news that God loves us so much to start bringing about new creation change in the place of our deepest need. There is a way in which we are called to operate as Christians considering this truth, considering true reality, knowing that from the Lord we will re receive the inheritance as our reward. What Paul has in view in these passages is present realities that are shaped by a future hope. We are called to keep eternity in view in the lives that we live now. We hold present circumstances up against the knowledge that everything is going to look different when Jesus comes back. Our future is bright. We are being made new. We are on the way to Zion, God's heavenly city, and that shapes the way we walk now. So come ye that love the Lord and let your joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord and thus surround the throne. We are marching on to Zion, the beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to God's city, the beautiful city of God. Then let our songs abound and every tear be dry. We are marching through Emmanuel's ground to fair worlds on high. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. Let us keep that beautiful city in view in the way that we live our lives. Let's pray. Father, we have a, a passage here this morning. That has more in it than I have the ability to speak on out of my own inadequacy. And yet the good news of this morning is that your word rings true and your word speaks and your word declares and your word sharpens and your word softens and your word reminds us that you are a God of righteousness, of justice, 
and of peace. May we be marked by those character traits as a people. May we promote the dignity and value and worth of humans. May we fight for that. May we fight that our community here would be a community that makes people feel like part of the new creation that, that helps them to look forward and in light of that comes to know you. Lord, as always, we, we don't want to get where we're trying to go if we don't become who we're trying to become. So please, Lord, help us to become like Christ. Help us to dive deeper into the unsearchable riches of his gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen.